So, Roxy, if someone in New York <laughs> asked you to sum up purity culture in five words or less, what would you five. say? <laughs> yes. Oh, my. Um... Premarital sex destroys your life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I came up with Jesus doesn't like short skirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think those two things combined just sum up purity culture. Yeah. The stakes were real high. I think that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> that's all we need to say. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women trying to navigate faith and sexuality in the world of New York. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. So as a lot of our listeners know, I'm sure there has been this groundswell of criticism of purity culture over the last several years. And... In retrospect, some of those practices like father-daughter purity balls or engagement rings with Jesus, uh, they seem a little weird. Yeah, they seemed a little weird at the time, and they seem extremely weird now. And we should say, like, not just weird, but harmful. Yeah, I think plenty of our peers and us, as we're going to talk about, would say purity culture gave them a lot of shame about their bodies, shame about their sex drives, ignorance about their bodies and their sex drives. Mm -hmm. And years later, a lot of us are still carrying around that shame and wrestling with sort of the ramifications of those teachings. Mm Mm-hmm. So do you have specific memories of like how you encountered purity culture as a teenager or maybe even as a child? We could fill a few hours with all the angst I felt as a teenager around waiting to have sex until I was married. You were afraid that you wouldn't? Yeah. I mean, well, I was so committed to it. I started dating a guy my sophomore year and we dated throughout high school until after I graduated. And, you know, we were, we were teenagers with hormones and Mm -hmm. he wasn't really like a practicing Christian. I mean, he was, he would have said he was a Christian, but he didn't like really go to church or wasn't part of a Mm -hmm. youth group. So I already felt bad enough about that. And then I just, I felt all of the weight of like, it's on me to stop any sex from happening in this relationship, you know, and all of the boundaries are up to me to draw. And he's the bad non-Christian kid, you know, like, I mean, I had this like sort Mm -hmm. of like idea in my head of like, well, he's the rebel guy, you know, Um, I'm sure Mm -hmm. I had some fantasies about converting him. Um, (laughs) This is so hot. Like converting a rebel. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, please. Like everything that we would do physically, I would have shame around it and questions. And I wasn't sure, like, was this too far? Was this too much? Do I need to back us up? Like, am I playing with fire? Like it was just, it was a constant Mm -hmm. refrain in my head for a couple of years. And did you talk to anybody about it or was it very like internal like I can't talk about it because I don't want to get in trouble or I don't want to seem bad yeah I didn't talk about it at all because with who you know talk about it with I guess my youth leader but it was a guy I didn't want to talk to him about that and Mm. then I felt like the only kid who wasn't having sex you know with their significant Mm. dating partner so I wasn't sure who to Mm -hmm. talk to about it my parents were baffled just completely baffled by the whole thing. 
I'm sure they they were happy in the sense that like glad to know my teenage daughter isn't going to get pregnant. Mm. But then when I got a little older and I was seriously dating the person I eventually married and and by eventually I mean a year after I met him and my dad I remember my dad saying like this is just really fast and I was only mm. 20 <laughs> and mm-hmm. he was like um what if you guys just had sex and didn't get married? <laughs> like, Rocky? I, know. I mean, he was like, and I, he wasn't wrong. I am sure I would have sworn mm. up and down at the time, you know, that like, no, we're not getting married just so that we can rush to being able to have sex. But in retrospect, mm-hmm. I'm sure that was part of it. You know, we mm-hmm. were like mm-hmm. young and in love and we had, decided at that point we weren't even going to kiss until we got married and my and my parents were just like and, and wait did you did you abide no, by that no we decided to to kiss it well, after we were engaged um but we waited until we were engaged until after we were engaged and anyway my dad was just like i think this is crazy <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. you know i mean we were married for 10 years. So it's not like it was a disastrous relationship in that way, you know, but I mm-hmm. still think we, we rushed into it. And I would say purity culture combined with sort of the church's major emphasis on marriage and family mm-hmm. and children, like those two things combined, I think we absolutely rushed into marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you? I feel like that, I feel like that story was not what I intended to tell, but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good one. I feel like it captures the angst around mm-hmm. sex. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but it's weird how similar my dating experience in high school was, which was that my senior year, I started dating an atheist. No, we haven't talked about that. We met in science class. Mm. That was the first problem. I was at a public school in a science class. Yeah, a rebellious atheist scientist. (laughs) What? (laughs) So anyway, started dating this atheist. I specifically remember asking my youth pastor, like, do you think this is okay? Am I allowed to do this? And she was like, I think it's fine. Oh, really? Yeah. Which, okay. (laughs) And... My parents were like, I mean, to their credit, they said, we're not going to tell you what to do. You you need to make the decision on your own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, within a few months of us dating, we started to make out, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I always had in my mind, we're not going to have sex and we didn't have sex. And I'm glad for that. But I just felt so much shame around any kind of physical mm-hmm. activity. And I think that probably stayed with me for a long time. I I think Mm -hmm. part of what purity culture did was frame any kind of sexual desire or physical intimacy as dangerous, dirty, a temptation. It's going to lead... Damaging. Yes. Like, what will your husband someday think if he knows what you've done with this other guy? Right. I mean, I think this is a good point to mention the various youth group metaphors that Mm -hmm. were used. And I think a lot of our listeners probably heard them. Like everything you do with another partner is like if you're an Oreo and somebody licked to the inside of it. And once someone is married, they don't want an Oreo that's been licked a bunch of times or gum that's been chewed. Or the cup that 
every time, you know, you do something with somebody that's not your husband, it's like spitting in a cup and then you have to drink it at the end. And it's just like, so so in this equation, in this metaphor, women's bodies are like Oreos Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or like gum. Mm -hmm. It's so gross. And it's not and it's not gross in the way that it was intended. It's like such a terrible object lesson for sex. Because it's objectifying and... It's also completely unbiblical. I mean, it leaves zero room for this idea that Jesus redeems, that uh, for grace, that you could be washed white as snow, like all of those things, you know, it doesn't have any of, it doesn't leave any room for that. It's like, this is the one sin that you cannot come back from. Oh man, here we go. I think that is probably one of the most personally damaging aspects of purity culture for me is that somehow it was ingrained that God would forgive anything Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. except for messing up sexually. Destroys your life. That there there was something that you couldn't come back from with this. I mean, the church, like churches preach more forgiveness for so many other areas of life. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like we can more easily conceive of someone like murdering someone Mm-hmm. And then, like, confessing and being redeemed or something than, like, someone who's like, yeah, I had sex before marriage. Yeah, especially a, especially a woman. And that's really yeah. messed up. And you're talking to teenagers. And it's such a formative time, too. I mean, if that is your primary exposure to teaching about sexuality, that's going to go really deep for a really long time. And it did. You know, one of the criticisms of purity culture recently has been from people who would say, you know, they got married young or maybe they got married too fast and they were expecting a certain kind of sexual experience within Mm -hmm. marriage and they found sex to be really shame inducing Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. really uncomfortable or bringing up these feelings of being dirty. Like even though it was happening in this right context or they couldn't have sex, like all sorts of things that you just, it is, it is so misleading for anybody to claim or promise a certain kind of sex life without knowing the particulars of two people. Right. And (laughs) I dare say, Purity culture had no imagination for women like us <laughs> who would be single in their 30s, be quote unquote old singles. Spinsters, <laughs> I think is the word. <laughs> because it was just assumed that, of course, we would be married. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I'm not a teenager anymore. And the way that those teachings were really constructed and meant to be taught from the licked Oreos to purity rings. Like that's just, that doesn't work 20 years later, you know, just developmentally even. Right. So it's clear by now that our experience with purity culture growing up was messy and more than a little confusing. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to be going to any purity balls in the near future. (laughs) I don't think this is going to be hot purity ball summer. I'm just (laughs) calling it. So If purity culture doesn't work, especially for single women in their 30s, what does? To help answer that question, we've invited a fellow journalist and single Christian woman. She's writing a book about how our culture approaches sex and what a Christian vision of human dignity can offer to the conversation. 
Christine Emba is an opinion editor and columnist at The Washington Post, as well as the author of the forthcoming book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. Mm. I think one of the outcomes of purity culture was actually to stifle conversation about what Mm. sex was, what sex was for, what Mm -hmm. you should be doing, when actually you should have it, what it means. And so when there were questions to be answered, when you did wonder, you know, how far is too far in a a non-mechanical sense, I guess, there wasn't space to talk about Mm -hmm. that. Our conversation with Christine is coming right up after we give a shout out to the organization that makes Saved by the City possible, Religion News Service. RNS is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Check out the newsletters and the opinion pieces from all different perspectives and belief systems. There's something for everybody. For the best in global religion reporting, religionnews.com. And don't be shy about contacting us. We definitely want to hear from you. You can email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com or tweet to us using the hashtag SavedByTheCity. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We are so excited today to be joined by Christine Emba. Christine is an opinion editor and columnist at The Washington Post. She is currently writing a book for Penguin that will be out in 2022 called Rethinking Sex. Thank you so much for joining us, Christine. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. You wrote for the Washington Post a few years ago about a kind of formula implied in purity culture, which is essentially that if you stay sexually pure, God will reward you with a very attractive spouse, ideally by the age of 25. There was a a certain kind of, if you do this, then God will uphold God's end of the bargain. Why do you think formulas like this are dangerous when some people would say, well, look, like it worked for me or this is just good wisdom or it's derived from the Bible? Like, why are those formulas unhelpful? So in the article that I wrote about I Kiss Dating Goodbye specifically, but more broadly, I talked about something that I described as the sexual prosperity gospel, which is exactly what you describe. It's basically this tit for tat sort of promise that if you do A, then God will do B to reward you. You know, if you remain sexually pure before marriage, God will reward you with a great marriage and the best sex Mm -hmm. ever. And that's just bad theology. You know, God is not a vending machine into which you input your good behavior and he outputs blessings. Our relationship with God is supposed to be a relationship and we're supposed to, you know, ideally want to be the fullest and best humans that we can be for the glory of God and to be more ourselves. And then also, I think this idea of the prosperity gospel, it fails because, you know, that's what these false teachings do. And then they provoke a real sort of sadness, confusion, and resentment that can really damage our relationships with each other and with the Lord. Because, you know, you say you abstain from sex until marriage, and then you get married and your marriage falls apart and you blame Mm -hmm. God 
because he didn't give you what you thought you were promised. Or alternately, you, you know, you blame yourself. You take the shame inwards. You think, I'm not good enough. I did something wrong. If only I could fix it. And you're both giving yourself, you know, more power and more blame than you really deserve. Mm-hmm. And there's so many stories I think that we're hearing now from women in particular, but men too, of like these teachings of purity culture and these sort of narratives and ideas around sex being dirty or shameful or something to avoid. It's not like those just immediately go away on your wedding night. And so, you know, we're hearing these stories about Christians who'd been abstinent going into marriage and then really not having good sex. In fact, even going into marriage sort of embarrassed by it or shamed by it or scared of it, or even with almost PTSD around even having sex. You know, humans aren't light switches, right? You can't, you know, for 20 years tell someone sex is dirty and bad. If you have sexual thoughts, you're a bad person. You have to be modest. If somebody sees you naked, it's a sin. This is all terrible. Be very afraid of it. Okay, you're married. Now sex is good and you should be naked all the time and be hot for your husband. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing several years ago, I think when like major critiques of purity culture started coming out, that purity culture is essentially rape culture. And at the time, I really balked at that because I thought, like, how could we compare these two narratives? Mm -hmm. But I think Mm -hmm. over time, I have come to see at least one connection point, which is that both purity culture and rape culture make women responsible for the sexual behaviors of men. It's just that in purity culture, the emphasis is like staying pure in rape culture. It's if something bad happened to you, then you probably did something to provoke it. But either way, both kind of cultural myths really blame women for men's sexual behavior as if men don't have any self-control or responsibility for their own actions yeah, is this something that in your experience too has sort of been mostly geared at women or sort of the 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 responsibility of it seems to have fallen more on women? I mean, I know men who grew up in purity culture, but it does seem like it hit them differently. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that a lot of the responsibility falls on women and you see that in again the lines that you hear over and over, right? Women are told not to be a stumbling block uh for mm-hmm. their male brothers men are not really told not to be stumbling blocks for their female friends. Mm. Another tie actually to rape culture is I think a little bit less obvious, but one of the things about purity culture that in hindsight I find and have found troubling was that you heard a lot about what you were not supposed to do in regards to sex, but not very much about what you should do and not very much about what sex actually was. Mm -hmm. I think one of the outcomes of purity culture was actually to stifle conversation about what Mm. sex was, what sex was for, what Mm -hmm. you should be doing, when actually you should have it, what it means. And so when there were questions to be answered, when you did wonder, you know, how far is too far in a a non-mechanical sense, I guess, there wasn't space to talk about Mm -hmm. that. And so when it comes to situations, you know, of sexual assault or sexual misbehavior, it begins to feel very odd to try and go and tell someone that something has happened or tell someone that you feel uncomfortable in a certain situation, or even just say, I feel confused by this, because even talking about sex felt in some way immodest. Mm. 
So there's kind of a blanket put over the whole conversation. How do you think purity culture uniquely affected you as a black woman? You know, was there sort of a difference in how you maybe heard that or how that was taught? I mean, I think that the way that sexuality is taught in churches and in the United States as well tends to reflect longstanding biases and tropes that we have. So, I mean, in the United States for a very long time, you know, during slavery and post, Black women Mm -hmm. were thought of and, you know, in some ways are still thought of as more sexual even than Mm -hmm. white women as Jezebels who Mm -hmm. were you know, tempting just by their very being. There's research that shows that Black children, both boys and girls, are seen as older than they are, where sometimes white girls of a certain age are seen as girls, Black girls are seen as women, as Mm -hmm. asking for it, as being sexy and sexual, even if they're just, you know, 12 or 13. And so I guess in some ways that combined with purity culture manifested in a felt need And also an implied, if not necessarily always spoken, emphasis on being even more pure, being even more Mm. modest, because somehow, you know, within myself as a Black girl and a Black woman, I had the capacity to be even more tempting and reckless than other people. And so I had to watch myself Mm. more um, than others did. Is there anything about purity culture that you think gets it right when it comes to distinctly Christian understanding of sexuality? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do think, and this is something that I am writing about in my book um, in slightly different terms, that a, a broadly Christian sexual ethic has a lot to offer in the current climate. I think that one thing that purity culture and sort of Christian sexual ethics does get right, that sometimes feels at odds with the culture today, is that you know, sex is different. Sex may not just be, you know, a physical activity akin to a handshake or something. You know, Mm -hmm. it's manifestly a way that we connect intimately with other people. It's a way that we learn more about ourselves and our embodied nature. Uh, It can be a way that, you know, people achieve transcendence and real connection in which they express real love for other people. And if that's the case, then, we do need to treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. You know, I think a lot of us on this side of purity culture hear words like chastity or restraint and prudence and think, oh, that's sex negative or that's shame oriented or that's boring. (laughs) But how do we reframe concepts like prudence and chastity and restraint, which seem so dusty and kind of a relic of a different way of thinking and talking about virtue. How do we kind of reclaim these words, especially as they relate to conversations now about consent and modern mainstream dating culture? Yeah. So that's, that's a really interesting way of framing it. By now we know that gorging on something makes it eventually kind of grotesque, like anything consistently gratuitous becomes a little bit obscene. And what we're actually seeing happen, interestingly, is what The Atlantic has described as a sex recession for our generation and for Gen Z, like people who have been 
you know, fully exposed to sex and like a sex positive environment where everything goes are having like the least sex of any generation. They, mm-hmm. you know, kiss later, hook up later. Many of them just don't find partners. There are like a ton of single people. And I wonder if, you know, there's something, something about that does have to do with this oversaturation. You know, boundaries can make something more exciting, more beautiful. Mm. I don't know. In our society of of yes, I guess we're conditioned to think that like saying no is, you know, kind of, as you said, like lame and old fashioned and boring, but yeah, actually I guess saying no can be kind of freeing and agency giving in some ways, especially in a culture that pushes us to say yes to everything, whether we want it or not in the name of freedom. So you grew up in a more evangelical community and heard some of the purity culture stories and language that you know, we all kind of identify with. But now as an adult, you've converted to Catholicism, which obviously has its own very long history of a sexual ethic. How has that sort of changed your perspective? Right. Good question. So I converted to Catholicism in college, in my senior year of college. And one of the things that, you know, had I'd struggled with as I got older and perhaps more thoughtful in evangelical culture was that many things didn't seem necessarily to be that thoughtful and purity culture was one of them, Mm. you know, like, okay, don't have sex. I'm like, okay, why not? Mm -hmm. Because Jesus. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's not super satisfying. And so one of the things that actually attracted me to Catholicism was just the long history of thinking about Mm -hmm. things like a long history of sort of theology of the body Mm -hmm. The theme of self-gift and mutual self-giving is big, um, mm-hmm. and I find that helpful in just you know, trying to remember sort of the context of sex and how to regard it, you know, not necessarily as a selfish act um, or something that I'm, you know, giving away, like my rose petals are disappearing, <laughs> et cetera, as I think we all know that reference. All the metaphors, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And then I guess... Um, more broadly, the idea of forgiveness in a way. So, I mean, the Catholic Church has just like a very clear sort of theology and practice of forgiveness, like going to confession. Um, and it's really clear. So, missteps don't necessarily feel like the end of the world, <laughs> which in coming from a culture where like, you know, sort of like if you do this thing, then you're cast out of the church and you're a fallen woman and everything is terrible. Right kind of reassuring and also there are just like a lot of other interests and a lot of types of people in the catholic church so like celibate people and priests and nuns Mm -hmm. um where it sometimes felt like evangelical culture had sort of one goal that you were striving towards Mm -hmm. right to like get married and start your family and if you're if you get sex wrong or get purity wrong or like you don't do it fast enough or in the right way you know, something is wrong with you and you're finished. And just having that, having other things to focus on within the faith, I think, other than worrying about my purity, um, has, I think, allowed me to make space for like a a larger relationship with God Mm -hmm. in some ways. And just like a, I think, a more integrated spirituality. Mm. That was a great answer. (laughs) Have you considered converting? <laughs> Many times. <laughs> Let me tell you. 
seen yet. <laughs> um, so now we're going to get into the fun stuff. Um, <laughs> in your own dating life, like how are these ideas working themselves out for you? And how do you date with these ideas and concepts and beliefs in mind? Yeah. How do, how does this work out? How do I work these things out? <laughs> with fear and trembling? <laughs> yes. With fear and trembling. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to care for other people and also care for myself, just like avoiding despair, just dating generally, but, Mm -hmm. you know, also trying to be human. And I'm also trying, frankly, to love what is the best way for me to be, to share myself with another person in, in a good way. Um, it's never, it's never totally clear, to be honest, and I've had successful relationships, and I've also probably lost some relationships mm-hmm. due in part to the way that I think about sex. Um, but, you know, my mom always says, what's for me is for me. Um, and also, like, self-compromise isn't a firm foundation on which to build a relationship. Right. So faking it doesn't help either. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons that we were so nervous about doing this episode is because, you know, when it comes to the question, where do you go from here? What does your dating life look like? Like, we're still working it out. We're still sorting it out. We are still building something in the wake of a rejection of the culture of purity. But it feels very messy and complicated, especially when you're in real time, like on a date or in a relationship with someone. It's not even that easy to theorize it right mm-hmm. now. And we're just like, gals chat, not a podcast. But yeah, there are questions that, you know, we are, I think all of us are thinking about how do we accord sex, you know, a privileged position in our lives that is justifiable without either exalting it unrealistically or undervaluing it totally. But I think, I hope that many people are coming to this realization. I mean, in writing my book, part of part of my motivation for beginning the process was talking to so many people who realized like there's something off with the way that we're having or not having sex now. How do we get to something better? Mm-hmm. So we may be kind of fighting through it right now, but at least we're not alone. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that is I'm so grateful not to be alone <laughs> and am grateful to <laughs> get to conversations like this and to have uh, girlfriends and just friends in general that are like willing to chat about these things and are going through them together so I really appreciate you coming on and talking with us about this very vulnerable and very personal topic Um, and yeah thank you so much yes thank you so much I am definitely looking forward to your book, um, Rethinking Sex, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be as well. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So when I think back to my experience with purity culture, I actually think less about shame or issues around modesty and more about broken promises. Broken promises. How so? 
So at age 14 or 15, I signed this pledge card at church that said I wouldn't have sex before marriage. You know, uh, this guest speaker came in on a Sunday night and gave us a talk about all the bad things that would happen if we had sex before marriage. We could get pregnant. We could get STDs. But, you know, most of all, it would be we would just feel so much shame on our wedding night And if we did save sex for marriage, we would be rewarded by God. And it seemed kind of innocuous at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't think I understood the import of the teachings. But what's clear to me now is that what was always implied is that I would be married. Mm. Right. There was this kind of trade-off at play or, or a deal at play. Like if I stayed, quote unquote, pure sexually, God would make good on this promise yeah. to provide a husband. Yeah. And of course, like the Bible doesn't say this. God never said this to me. But lots of people who represent spiritual authority mm-hmm. said that to me and I think to a lot of us, right? Yeah, it's a nice simplified morality version of, you know, a little bit of a fairy tale version. If you do it right, then you'll get this. So I kept my part of the deal. <laughs> through my teens and 20s in terms of not going across certain lines in dating relationships. And that was really important to me. And then in my late 20s, you know, I went through two pretty major romantic disappointments Mm -hmm. within a year or two of each other. Mm -hmm. One was a broken engagement and the other was a relationship that I thought would go somewhere and then everything kind of fell apart. Mm -hmm. And I was... 29 when that happened and I just remember feeling so angry at God yeah which wasn't rational but I think it was because I was still living with this idea that God had promised something that God was withholding Mm -hmm. and that I wasn't getting what I really wanted and what I thought God had promised for me and so like this wasn't the story that you were told in your teens when you made that pledge not at all you thought I'm going to wait until I'm 25, you know, and then I'll be married or 24 or 26, not indefinitely. And gosh, like in the subculture I lived in at the time, mm-hmm. it was like 30. Yes. No, Christians get married much younger. 30 seemed like, oh, wow. Okay. You're, you're really single now. You know, you're, you're struggling with singleness. You're in a <laughs> season, a long season of singleness. So honestly, like in my, anger, which I think was ultimately about sadness Mm -hmm. and confusion, I threw purity culture out the window. Like, I just didn't abide by purity culture anymore. And I think some of that was like, I felt it it made me feel better. It made me feel more in control. Right. But also, I, I felt like I was kind of lacking a reason for maintaining sexual purity. Right. If it wasn't about marriage and this promise of having a certain kind of life. I didn't have a good reason to stay, quote unquote, sexually pure anymore. Yeah. And I think when you hit an age like that, or when your marriage falls apart, it doesn't feel like the guarantees are there. And you start to think, well, this happily ever after that I thought I was going to get, it may not ever actually get here. Like it may not ever actually come. So what am I doing? Figuring out how do I want to live as a Christian and a sexual being if it's not attached to a particular life outcome? I don't think purity culture equipped us Mm -mm. to work out a sexual ethic at this time in our lives. But, you know, 
<laughs> figuring out the integration of faith and sexuality for its own good rather than what you might get out of it seems like a better approach than staying quote unquote pure because you're going to get a reward. I feel like that was a mouthful. So what do you mean by sexual integration? I think God cares about every aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. And for me, at least, I want to understand what it means to be a person of faith in my sexuality as I do with every other part of my life. It would be really convenient to kind of just Mm -hmm. sequester it off to the side. And I certainly have done that Mm -hmm. in the past. Mm -hmm. But I think with a lot of like therapy and prayer and conversations with friends and like making the mistakes and realizing, Oh, I don't actually want to sequester that off. I want to act like my sexuality matters Mm -hmm. like every other part of my life does and being an integrated person and realizing I can't sequester off my sexuality and nor can I sequester off my faith. But these two things often feel at odds. Right. Well, and I, I don't think we've been taught well, how sexuality can be spiritual or how it is part of a whole bodied faith. I think the other lie there is, is it's the flip side of the broken promise that you experienced, which is it didn't seem like everybody's lives fell apart when they had sex outside of marriage. And in fact, Mm -hmm. most of the people seemed fine and people who had waited maybe actually we're having a harder time with sex. You know, I mean, it seems like Mm -hmm. sex outside of marriage didn't seem to be the end all that I had been taught that it would be. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like your life didn't fall apart. Right. You didn't get struck by lightning. Right. You didn't like, it didn't mean you couldn't have a happy, healthy relationship. So, yeah, I mean, if the promises didn't come true, but also the warnings didn't really pan out either. Mm -hmm. Right. It would be easy to conclude like, well, maybe this whole sex thing doesn't matter that much one way or the other. Right. Like this was just a teaching meant to police Mm -hmm. and not meant for actual flourishing or like, yeah. Like, is there any truth to this at all? It does strike me that in purity culture, we talked a lot about the effects of sex one way or the other, but we didn't actually talk about the connection between sexuality and spirituality. Right. Like it is, we're just going to go there. You know, you hear these stories of women and including lots of Christian women who would say they have never had an orgasm in their marriage. Yeah, you sure hear about that. Maybe they never expected to because they were never taught that that was something that they should experience in sex. No, sex was mostly taught as an orgasm for the man. I mean, everybody should figure out what their boundaries are in terms of how much they want to divulge in conversation. But in the context of friendships or relationships where you trust the other person and maybe you're in a similar phase of life, it's really good to talk about these things Because the more we don't, the more you start to feel isolated. Mm -hmm. And like, am I weird? Mm -hmm. Because am I the only one? Am I the only one? And is this bad? And 
I think the more that we can normalize conversations about sexuality in faith communities, the closer we'll be to working out a sexual ethic that works in day-to-day life. Yeah. And I mean, we're grown-ass adults. We don't need to be all tee-hee about sex. The fact that that's still kind of the way it is at churches. Like, when was the last time you heard any kind of message about sex that wasn't about, like, it's either in the youth group telling kids not to have sex or it's reserved Mm -hmm. for a conversation for married people. Mm -hmm. There's very little talk about this growing population in every church of middle-aged single people and what our (laughs) sexual ethic is supposed to be. Yeah, I just wonder if pastors and church leaders are terrified. Yeah, and they're mostly married. Right, because they they realize, like, who am I mm-hmm. to, to tell mm-hmm. these single people in my church what to do because I'm I'm married and I don't I haven't experienced what they have or like it's just too uncomfortable. I don't want to be telling people what to do with their bodies. It just <laughs> strikes me as curious that there's so much emphasis on it as for teenagers. And then mm-hmm. it's just this whole empty vacuum of space until people are talking about it in premarital courses or in marriage retreats and there's a reality that there's there is this big group of people people are getting married later and later who are ending up being left alone to figure out what their sexual ethic is or to fall back on the only teachings they ever heard which were teenage purity culture teachings So here we are, single, much later than expected in life. You know, I think I'm in a place where I want to have this holistic sexual ethic that I could really believe and pursue and have in front of me as an ideal and as what I want in a relationship. And yet when I do that, I can't seem to shake that little like teenage Roxy crying in the bedroom, worrying about how far was too far and have I messed this all up. Like I'm still at a place in my own life where I'm trying to detangle a lot of the baggage and the shame and the fear that came with purity culture in order to really be able to actually embrace a sexual ethic that that still feels connected to my faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me to bring God into it without bringing purity culture into it too. Mm-hmm. And I, that's something I'm still just really working out. Thanks for therapy. It's really hard for me to even talk about this in some ways because I do still feel like I'm on very like fluid ground around this, and mm-hmm. and that frightens me because that's one thing about purity culture is it just felt real solid. Like here's the line, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think trying to build something that is all of what you described, you know, consent isn't enough. Consent doesn't do it for me. Um, And I think popular conversations around sex right now are so focused on consent, which I wholly and wholeheartedly get behind honoring yourself in a sexual relationship. But I still think you need to honor the other person too. And that doesn't often come into those conversations um, other than just like, if they say no, that's no, but it's really about like so much more about like, that's it, you know, and the rest of it is about you. 
And well, as, as Christine said, it tends to be transactional. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think sex, something as powerful and personal and intimate as sex is probably in a different category of human experience than a transaction. Yeah. And I want to believe that for sure. We need more robust categories, ethical categories than something that's transactional. Well, I'm sure some of our listeners are disappointed that we're not like, this is the camp we're in. But I also hope or believe and hope that a lot of our listeners will resonate with Mm -hmm. where we are and be grateful that we went first. (laughs) You're welcome. And (laughs) And maybe this episode will open up better conversations. I hope so. And more honest conversations. And and honestly, some soul searching in the church too, about how to serve this need in the single community. Oh my gosh, we made it. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> we passed third base. We're headed to home. <laughs> oh, I love baseball sex metaphors. We just had to get at least one in there. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Saved by the City. If you like what we're doing, we would love to hear from you. You can tweet to the hashtag Saved by the City and we will get it and reply. We want to hear from you and we want to hear who we should talk to and what we should talk about. Or you can email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. Saved by the City is a Religion News Service production. The executive producer is Jay Woodward, and we get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Our consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.